Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to uh, bring in today Pulitzer Prize winning historian and writer Doris Kearns Goodwin. Her new book is The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. It's a history of the first decade of the progressive era. That time has definite parallels to our time. It's uh, stories told through the intense friendship of Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, a close relationship that strengthens both men before it uh, blows up in 1912 when they engage in a brutal fight for the presidential nomination. That's the part of the history that's uh, usually focused on. Doris Kearns Goodwin says that uh, their friendship and uh, partnership is an untold story. Uh, The Bully Pulpit is also a story of the muckraking press and a golden age of journalism. Doris Kearns Goodwin, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. And, of course, people will uh, recognize you from uh, you know many best-selling books, including most recently A Team of Rivals, uh, your story of uh, Lincoln and his, uh, his cabinet. I want to start with uh, something, I guess, sort of parenthetical. Um, just, uh, was it last week, week before, we had the 50th anniversary of the uh, assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and uh, we did a program... And uh, as a part of that, we we talked about presidential assassinations, and this time that you treat, in fact, Teddy Roosevelt came to the presidency through the assassination of William McKinley. About 35 years, three presidents were were killed. I wonder what your your thoughts are on that. We we learned, of course, the vulnerability of of, uh, presidents, and even with the rise of Secret Service, you you, you know, there have been attempts on President Reagan and such. But this time, that 35-year that period from Lincoln to, to McKinley, I wonder what your thoughts are. No, you know, it's really interesting to think that, I mean, between Lincoln's assassination, then there was Garfield, and then there was McKinley, and then an attempt on FDR that failed, and then, of course, John F. Kennedy, and then the attempt on Reagan. So I guess what happens when we're in one of those periods between them, you get, you know, you think, oh, my God, this can't happen. And then history shows that it has happened many too many times. And in Theodore Roosevelt's case, the vice presidency then was much, much less powerful than it is today. Indeed, the political bosses in New York, fearing that Roosevelt was too much of a young reformer, thought they would bury him in the vice presidency and that he would not be heard from again. And he, too, himself felt that he had been destined to have no job to do, essentially, and was even so bored he was thinking about going back to law school. And then, of course, McKinley is shot, and he becomes president. And the whole course of history probably is altered as a result. One of your chapters is titled, That Damned Cowboy is President. I'm not sure who's speaking there. <laughs> that, that was the view of, uh, of Roosevelt in, in some circles. That's exactly right. That was the view particularly of the political bosses and the conservative old guard that ran the Republican Party. That was Mark Hanna, who was actually the political campaign boss for McKinley and had never thought that he should even be put in the vice presidency. He said, you realize there'll only be one life between this character and the presidency. And then, finally, as, as it says, oh, no, that damn cowboy is president. <laughs> now, you write that throughout the latter part of the 19th century, <clears throat> presidents had been captive to their parties. That's correct. I mean, the party was really the powerful structure then. Think about it. It's before primaries, before today, where candidates can raise their own independent funds and run for office. So a candidate was dependent upon the nomination by the party, and then the party press would be the communication to the public. The party would provide the funds. So the bosses of the party really did have control, and they probably would not have chosen willingly a Roosevelt had he not been vice president and then become president and then developed his own popular following. So even in '04, they probably wouldn't have wanted him, but he couldn't be denied because he had become so popular by that point. I think we tend to forget that the, this progressive movement had a home in the Republican Party at that time. No, absolutely right. No, that's where, um, not just with Teddy Roosevelt, but with other progressives, La Follette, and a series, especially from the West. I mean, I think where the progressive movement started was further West, because the Eastern manufacturers had a hold on the Republican Party, and their interests were different from the farmers in the West. So the farmers in the West first became populist, and they had some of a, somewhat of a hold in the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party was, was stuck on states' rights because they had such a, a following in the South, so they didn't believe in federal government doing any of the regulatory actions. In the Republican Party, it was more the federal government among the progressives wanting workmen's compensation, wanting 
exploitation of women and children in the factories to stop, breaking up the huge monopolies. That was where the original impetus came from the Republican Party. Now, you said uh, one of the things as you went along with the, with the book, one of the central questions was how did Roosevelt transform the presidency? I think you say he transformed the presidency to, to get the entrenched laissez-faire attitude of, uh, of government uh, to, to move into this progressive era. I mean, that is correct. He, I mean, before that, the Congress really was, from, from Lincoln's time, obviously Lincoln was a powerful president given war, but the presidents that succeeded him, the Congress really had taken the power of the country and, and really was pretty much against regulating. The idea was a fear that if the government did anything in the economy, the economy was flourishing, you have this industrial revolution coming along, even though you had recessions for the ordinary people, and there was a sense that it would only screw things up more if the economy was in any way regulated by the government. So Roosevelt coming in recognized that his major task was to educate the people to make them pressure the Congress from the outside in. And that's why he coined the phrase the bully pulpit, meaning bully meaning at that time splendid or great, and pulpit meaning that you had a chance to give moral instruction to the country about what its obligations were. And that's why he took to the train and he was on the road so much and had these relationships with these journalists who were producing stories that described the conditions of the time and why they needed to be softened to help people who were being hurt by the industrialization. And that's something we have come, become used to, hasn't it? Uh, Reagan was very good at this. Uh, presidents in modern times have realized that if, if you want to put pressure on Congress, you have to go to the people. But it's... Is it more personality? Uh, TR definitely had that personality. I think it's partly personality, and it's partly understanding the technology of your era. I mean, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, that is, was coming into power just at the time when national newspapers and national magazines were really crisscrossing the country. Up till that time, most of the press in the 19th century had been partisan press. You would only read your Republican newspaper or your Whig newspaper or your Democratic newspaper, and the facts would be all different like Lincoln in a Republican newspaper, could give a great speech with people taking him out on their shoulders. In the Democratic newspaper, the same speech would be described as if he fell on the floor and they had to carry him off because he was so bad, hooing, you know, booing and hissing. But then you get these national newspapers and they get reporters who are reporting more factually, and they would print all of Teddy Roosevelt's speech in the newspapers. And he was such a good speaker with so many good slogans that he really was able to communicate. And then you get to FDR, who understood radio, and his fireside chats were listened to by 80% of the audience. And then you get Reagan, up to Reagan, JFK to Reagan, television when you had the three networks. And then the speech would be reported in full. Now, I think it's much harder. You have a divided media once again. People might only listen to their own cable. The speech might be criticized by the pundits before it's hardly finished. Then the attention span is gone within days anyway. But it still remains a powerful tool for a president. So the bully pulpit is somewhat fractured, but but you say still powerful. I think it's still potentially powerful. Mm. I think it hasn't been able to bring that outside pressure to bear as, you know, recent previous presidents were able to do, certainly in these last years. Teddy Roosevelt cultivated the press. Absolutely. I mean, he had the richest relationships with the press. I think of any president I've known. I mean, FDR was pretty close to some members of the press, too, but... In Teddy Roosevelt's case, I think in part it was because he was a writer himself, so he valued fellow writers. I mean, he wrote almost 40 books, and he really cared about writing. So he considered them, when he would read an article, especially the people that I focused on at this one magazine, McClure's Magazine, when it was well-written and it told a story, he would immediately get the reporter to come the next day to the White House so they could talk about it. He did that regularly with reporters, with novelists, with short story people, and he understood that they would have to feel free to criticize him to keep their integrity. He accepted that, and they did, and then he could criticize them for not being practical enough about what the solutions were. But it meant that it was a really productive relationship between the press and Teddy, and it gave him an extra bully pulpit, not only his own words, as he traveled around the country, but he could use the stories that they had uncovered in their investigative researches to illustrate the need for breaking up the trusts or certain kind of legislation to get through the Congress. Of course, this gets complicated, right, especially in our time. Uh, and part of this was mutual admiration and, and mutual goals. 
did uh, Teddy Roosevelt say, was this purposeful? He, he, he knew that he could get a, a greater conduit to the people, so he cultivated these members of the press? Yes, I do think so. I mean, I think it came naturally to him, and also, as I say, because he was willing to accept criticism. I mean, my favorite story is when one of the journalists, who became later a good friend of his, but had written a mocking review of his memoir about the Rough Riders, in which he said that Roosevelt had so put himself in the center of action that he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. And everybody's laughing, and he writes back, Roosevelt does, to the journalist saying, I regret to tell you that my wife and my entire family are delighted with your review of my book. Now you owe me one. I want to meet you. I've long admired you. And then the guy was at first resistant to come because he, he was always lampooning Roosevelt. He was a humorist, but then he decided he could still meet him and still lampoon him. So that's, that kind of temperament that doesn't pull back when you get criticized is the key. And how is that, uh, maybe compare and contrast to, to today? You know, we famously have spin. The White House is trying to, you know, everybody's trying to spin the reporters, and it's kind of a an arms race between the press and the government um, in, in terms of cultivating each other and trying to influence each other. Yeah, it's a really good question, and I think... You know, there's always going to be tension between the press and the government, and it's probably a healthy tension. I mean, that's good in a democracy. I think what's worrisome today is that we don't even seem to agree on what the facts are. I mean, what was so important about the McClure's magazine that I've focused on is that the founder, Sam McClure, gave his reporters, Ida Tarbell, Lincoln Steffens, Ray Baker, William Allen White, all of whom are legendary journalists in the history of the journalism world, he gave them a couple years to do the research, so when their long articles, which would take maybe a month after month for a year, came out, they were pretty impregnable in terms of being based on authentic information. And so you could argue about the remedies that they suggested, but at least the country had some sense of, of fairness and credibility of the source. You know, and now again, because of the such divided media, you could listen to different stations or different re- papers and you might not even agree what the facts of a situation are. And I think that makes the whole tension so much greater. There are definite parallels. In fact, in some of the promotional materials for your book, uh, they quote some headlines. The gap between rich and poor has never been wider. Legislative stalemate paralyzes the country. Corporations resist federal regulations. Spectacular mergers produce giant companies. Those are headlines from then, this progressive era. But they could be from today. I know people tease me, did I predict that this would have some similarity? But I think, unfortunately, the answer is my books take so long to write. (laughs) Somehow history cycles back to wherever I am. I mean, same with Team of Rivals and Lincoln. When I started the book, I had no idea that Obama would put Hillary into the cabinet as a team of rival, as Lincoln had put Seward and his other rivals in. In this case, I think what brought about the parallel is that what created that gap between the rich and the poor in the turn of the 20th century was the Industrial Revolution. So it had fundamentally altered the economy. Before that, the richest person might have been a doctor or a lawyer living on a hill in a small town. And then you had that huge movement from towns to cities that had begun since the Civil War. And it was interesting, they talked at the turn of the 19th century that the pace of life was speeding up, that lots of nervous disorders had developed because it was no longer the solace of country living. You had the jarring sounds of the city. You had telegrams replacing letters. You had local news, horrible news, going from all around the world. And think of it exponentially today. And I think the, the comparability is the digital revolution here, which once again has created billionaires, but ordinary people have not been able to benefit as much, similar as it was after the Industrial Revolution. And obviously the pace of life has sped up exponentially now compared to then. Do you see parallels when, when you read progressives today? Do you see echoes from that period? Well, I think the same argument is being used today that government needs to... What, 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 what characterized the progressives at the turn of the century was the argument that private power was in control at the turn of the century and that the big business guys had more power even than the government itself, and you needed to step in through public power, the government in, in order to, to undo railroad rebates, to undo you know, some of these monopolies, etc., and still that remains the argument today, how much should government be involved in the social and economic life of the country? Of course, the problem today, I think, is given bureaucratization and just the unmanageability of government, and given several decades where government seemed the problem more than the solution, 
the faith in government that was just beginning to develop at the turn of the 20th century, I think, has been battered in recent years. But I think the argument still prevails. The role of government did change in this era, didn't it? We're talking about the the early progressive um, era. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, as you uh, paint the portrait, uh, moved somewhat carefully. It was a somewhat a moderate movement, but he definitely moved government to to get involved in many of these things. Oh, no question. I mean, just think of all the national parks and the wildlife reserves. All of those lands had originally been open for private exploitation, so that it might have been that none of what we know as our national monuments um, would have been set aside if he hadn't taken the actions to have government set them aside for generations to come. So that's just one example of where government played, I think many people today would agree, a very helpful role because those heritages and those monuments should be for our children's children. But at the same time, he saw that these giant monopolies, he wasn't even against big bigness of business. It was rather whether they had used unfair means to achieve their monopoly positions. So he broke up Standard Oil and there were suits against U.S. Steel and in the hope that small businesses would not then continue to be crushed. And then there was working conditions in the meatpacking plants and workers' compensation. None of those protections for workers had really been realized until the beginning of this time. Now, when uh, you hear people of different political stripes looking back at conservatives, for example, want smaller government, I don't hear much Theodore Roosevelt bashing. You you know, his, his relative FDR gets a lot of the blame from, from those circles, but uh, I wonder why. Well, I think maybe the... You know, the essentials that Roosevelt put in place, most people might agree were necessary. And I think what Roosevelt himself would have, uh, would have argued is socialism was a really powerful force at the turn of the 20th century. There were a lot of strikes in the streets. The unions had a lot of violent strikes that were going on. Something had to be done to alleviate the pressures from the industrial era. And as you suggested earlier, Roosevelt was rather a conservative, knowing that he had to take these actions but arguing that he wanted to have centrist, rational actions. And so he moved us where, had he not done so, he said the Republican Party would be destroyed. He said, my own Republican Party has to understand that unless they take these centrist um, actions, then it's going to be a problem for them and for the country. So I think people looking back, I mean, I remember John McCain had Teddy Roosevelt as his hero. It's also a matter of personality. I mean, he was so colorful, so interesting probably was one of our most popular in terms of people's emotional feelings toward him, presidents that we've ever had. The, and certainly probably the most popular since Lincoln at that time. I think that's right. And Lincoln, of course, you know, during the war itself, you know, there was such division not only between the South and the North, but within the North itself. There was many people who didn't want the Emancipation Proclamation. So his popularity and his deep and enduring love occurred you know, near the end of his administration and then after his death, whereas Teddy Roosevelt's was during his time, and in part because he loved being president. You know, and I think the people felt that. He, he spent lots of time, as I said, going out among them. He knew how to speak to them in very simple language. He once said his Harvard friends might think he spoke too homely and, and folksy, but you know, his little phrases, the square deal, perfectly captured what people were feeling. You know, I'm not going to be against the wealthy simply because they're wealthy, only if they use unfair means to get their wealth. I'm not going to be against the poor simply because they're poor, only if they don't make take advantage of their opportunities. You know, speak softly and carry a big stick. And, you know, even even he even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. He was great at shortening things, which, again, is part of a communication challenge for a president. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading in your book an interesting parallel between uh, Theodore Roosevelt and, and Lincoln. The reformers hearkened back to Lincoln as uh, as uh, having the Republican Party be a progressive force. I think that's right, and and what's true is not simply because of you know the Emancipation Proclamation and the war itself, but Lincoln's Republican Party, um, having come from the Whig Party, believed that the government had a role in what they called internal improvements whereas the Democrats did not at that time. And what that meant were rivers and bridges and harbors to help the development of the West. And they thought that was a government responsibility. So they were already partway along the way for the role of government in the economy. And that was the the Lincoln that they harked back to, as well as the 
the civil, you know, the civil rights Lincoln. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's author of Team of Rivals, her book on Lincoln and his cabinet, and uh, several other uh, books, including Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream, the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, No Ordinary Time, Eleanor Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, The Homefront During World War II, Wait Until Next Year, a memoir. And the latest book is The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. We've been talking about Theodore Roosevelt. After a brief break, we're going to talk uh, about William Howard Taft, um, who uh, doesn't get enough credit, uh, says uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. And we'll talk about the golden age of journalism back after a brief break. Who says Sting Pit can't be fun? Join us for the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health for great tips on healthy living, like this recipe for Thai Summer Rolls. We always have a great time, so will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday morning at 3 and Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering a housed pickled vegetable demi baguette sandwich with tomato jam. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. We're speaking with Doris Kearns Goodwin, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, author most uh, recently before this latest book of Team of Rivals, a New York Times bestseller about uh, Lincoln and his cabinet and the basis for the Academy Award-winning film Lincoln. Uh, other books include Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream, The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, No Ordinary Time, Wait Until Next Year. Uh, and uh, the book is The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, I believe... You have said you set out to write a book about Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, how did William Howard Taft enter in as a, an equal partner here? <laughs> well, I think what happened is always I've chosen presidents that are the most interesting to live with, but then always so many books have been written about them. So I need to find, hopefully, a fresh angle. So I started following Roosevelt, obviously, through his term. And then in 1908, he had handpicked Taft as his successor and, then in 19- and wanted him to win. And in 1912, he came back and ran against Taft. And I knew very little about what had really happened in that whole situation. So I started studying these hundreds of letters that Taft and Teddy had written to each other, discovered they had really been good friends when they were in their 30s, when they were both in Washington, lived in the same section of the city together. One was Solicitor General, the other Civil Service Commissioner. And that Teddy enormously respected Taft and made him not just Secretary of War in his cabinet, but the most important counselor he had when he went on trips, he would say, don't worry, I've left Taft sitting on the lid. (laughs) And then they had these huge cartoons of the large Taft sitting on the lid. And then to try and figure out what happened when he went to Africa, came back, and progressives told him that Taft had really betrayed his legacy as a progressive reformer. And I realized it wasn't quite true. It was much more complicated than that. And that became a mystery to try and unravel. And Taft is a really decent, amiable, kind-hearted, gentle, good man that I think history had not treated fairly. Tell us a little bit more about Taft. It, yeah, from your account, everybody liked him. He was it, not only very likable, but very able, very honorable, man of integrity. Absolutely. No, I mean, he intelligent. He graduated second in his class from Yale. He always wanted to be a lawyer, always wanted to be a judge, actually, and became a judge when he was young. And I think the big difference between Teddy and Taft was that Taft had a judicial temperament, which meant he didn't understand the need to have to explain decisions afterwards. If you're a judge, you make the decision that explains itself. He, was, he liked to take time doing things. He wasn't quick at doing things. And he didn't like politics from the time he was young. He had a wife who loved politics and who he loved And so he entered that realm, I think, in part because she was so happy in in the more expansive life that a political career would provide than a judicial career. And he was able, as long as he was the number two person to somebody, to operate perfectly, as long as he wasn't in the political spotlight. He had been a great solicitor general. He was a great governor general in the Philippines and then a very good secretary of war. But once he got into the presidency, he was never comfortable with the public side 
of it in terms of making speeches or dealing with the public. Even though he accomplished more than we thought he did in carrying out Teddy's legacy, it felt like a betrayal to the progressives who wanted a fighting spirit out there. So it's personality and temperament? I think it was personality and temperament. I mean, the interesting thing, as you said before, that people really liked him, Teddy himself said he envied Taft's personality, that he had such a lovable sense of self that people immediately cottoned on to him while it took longer to, to get on to Teddy. Um, so I think it really was temperament. I mean, it certainly wasn't a desire to betray Teddy. He did become somewhat more conservative just because in order to get the Congress to pass the legislation that he wanted, Teddy wanted to pass, he had to make deals with these guys, and he wasn't as clever about making deals and making the compromise look good, so the progressives thought he compromised too much. And then, of course, once the 1912 election is there and you've got Wilson running as a progressive and Teddy running as a progressive, as he said, the only room left for me is as a conservative. And he probably did become more conservative from then on, but certainly during Teddy's reign, they were absolutely at one in most of their views about what should be done. Probably bringing it forward to the modern era, there, there, I'm guessing there are people who are on that track and maybe wouldn't be suited by temperament or personality for the presidency, but that's the next logical step for them. Their ambition moves them forward. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that's happened in the modern age. I mean, it used to be when someone was a senator, you know, that that was the height of your ambition and you loved it. And you could be resting assured that that's where you could give your greatest uh, contribution to the country. And now it seems that the minute somebody gets into one of those national positions, the media is speculating that they might be presidential material. And then before you know it, you're on the presidential track. And it may be, I think you're right, that not all people are suited for that. It's a very, you know, it's a very complicated job. And I think the most important thing is, and that's what distinguished Teddy Roosevelt, you've got to love it. I mean, you've got to love what you're doing because it shows. I think the people feel it if you do or you don't. Is the presidency a fundamentally different job today than it was in, in that era? I suspect it is. You know, I suspect, I mean, always leadership, I think, the same qualities that make a good leader are true from, you know, the early days to today in terms of, you know, are they able to get through times of trouble? Can they communicate with their countrymen? Do they have principles, but are they willing to compromise? All of those are human traits that leaders in business, government, or, you know, private life, I think, share. But the nature of the job itself, I think, differs. I mean, obviously, just the nature of the bureaucracy. Think about Lincoln having two secretaries, Nicolay and Hay, and the size of the White House staff today. Um, or even Teddy Roosevelt being able easily to go around the country on these train trips stopping at village stations along the way, people bringing him gifts and, you know, horned lizards and, and badgers and bears. You know, I can't imagine today with the Secret Service that you could have that kind of connectivity to the people. And then the nature of the media being so different today, so much more, you know, ever-present than it was in those days. But I guess leadership still has some fundamental traits, as they say, that, that are universal. If you just joined us, uh, you're listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Doris Kearns Goodwin, winner of the Pulitzer Prize uh, and a best-selling author of many books, including a Team of Rivals, a book about Lincoln and his cabinet. The latest book is The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of uh, Journalism. Uh, I wonder if you'd uh, expand a little bit on this partnership between Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft that you uncovered in this book. Taft, of course, is very much in the shadow in conventional thinking of, of Theodore Roosevelt, you said they were very, very good partners, very well suited to uh, to move forward their agenda together. No, that is true. Once Taft was brought back from the Philippines by Roosevelt to be his Secretary of War, he said to him then, I need you as my main counselor on issues that relate to capital and unions and, and labor. And so it wasn't just his position in Secretary of War, but he was the counselor for him on all those domestic issues. And, and he did feel, I mean, it was important for Roosevelt to get away a lot, in, as I was saying, in order to get out among the public. So he would be gone for weeks at a time, sometimes just on hunting trips. But also, I mean, that's impossible to imagine today. You could go away for three weeks on a hunting trip as president. I don't think we could imagine that today. But he needed somebody back at home that he could trust to take care of the problems that arose. 
and he knew that Taft was honorable, full of integrity, would tell him what was happening, wouldn't take credit for things, would, you know, would take the blame if something went wrong, that all the perfect attributes, I think, of a subordinate. And then in those days, presidents weren't supposed to campaign on their own behalf, was considered undignified. So in 1904, when Roosevelt was running again, it was Taft who was the main surrogate out giving speeches. And interestingly, when he had to give speeches for Roosevelt, he was fine. It was when he had to talk about himself that he became more, you know, ill at ease. But he was one of the most effective campaigners for Roosevelt during the 1904 election. Tell us a little bit about uh, 1912. I think a lot of us have uh, just a vague notion about that. It This moves into sort of Shakespearean tragedy, these two very close friends. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt comes back from Africa. As you said before, he hears from some progressives that uh, Taft hasn't done the job, and he decides to run against the uh, current president. And I think part of it was that he just missed being president, too. I mean, I think he was legitimately feeling like the progressives needed a more fiery champion of their cause. But he loved being in the center of action so much that his daughter Alice said he wanted to be the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral and the baby at the baptism. And so when he came back, I think he was just restless. And so they come to him. And finally, in February of 1912, he decides that his hat is in the ring, that he will challenge Taft for the Republican nomination. And where you can really feel the heartbreak and how deep this was between the two men are through the letters of this extraordinary figure, Archie Butt, who had been a military aide for both Teddy and then stayed on with Taft. So close to Teddy that Teddy thought of him as another son, but he stayed with Taft, and Taft he became very loyal to as well. And you can, as you read these daily letters he wrote to his family, you can see how Archie was feeling the rupture and didn't know what to do about these two men he loved pulling further and further apart. So it was very sad. And then once they started on the campaign trail, their, their language got very bitter toward each other, almost as if they had to justify doing this to each other, because I know they didn't believe the things they were saying. I mean, Teddy would say of Taft that he had the brain of a guinea pig, which was absurd. You know, and Taft would say of Teddy, he's a danger to the republic. And then the progressives and the conservatives, their language toward each other was a civil war within the Republican Party. So by the time you get to the Chicago convention in June, where Taft has secured most of the party vote in the conventions, but primaries had just started in that year, and Teddy won most of the primaries. So they were pretty close in votes. But Taft wins the nomination. Teddy then leaves, bolts, forms the Bull Moose Party, the third party. And they must almost know at the beginning they're not going to have a chance by splitting the votes. In fact, one of the Republican senators there said it's only a question now of which corpse gets the most flowers because they're both going to lose, which they did, to the Democrat Woodrow Wilson. And otherwise, the Republican probably would have won. Probably. They had had a majority, except for Cleveland, they had had a majority in the Congress and in the presidency um, since the Civil War, since Abraham Lincoln. So they had a long run. And that's right, they split the vote. I mean, they, they got more than 50%, Taft and Teddy. So prob- I think probably Teddy um, running alone would have won. It's complicated whether Taft would have or not, just because the country had moved more progressive and if he were perceived as a conservative. But if Teddy had stayed supporting him and then waited till 1916 to run himself, then I think Taft could have won, and then Teddy could have won. So it's, it was a big, you know, it's a big decision he made to, to not wait until 1916. And he was only in his 50s. Uh, this, so this had big political implications. I wonder about the, the personal um, legacy. The, the, the families were close, right? The, the, the wives. Right. So this, this split up uh, the entire families. Oh, I mean, the two, one of Teddy's kids and one of Taft's kids had been best friends. The wives were then ruptured relatives were ruptured no it was a really it was a really hard thing for everybody around they felt you know like like everything had been undone and dissolved in a way now later on i'm not sure exactly when this was a very poignant moment in the book um taft is taking the elevator up to a party someone informs him that uh, teddy roosevelt is there oh uh, right now this is thank god for this i mean i knew i didn't want to end the book with the rupture in 1912. So I decided to just follow Taft and Teddy's relationship between then and Teddy's death in 1919. And in the six years after 1912 until 1918, nothing really worked. Political allies and mutual friends tried to get them together, 
but as Taft said, it was more one feeling of arm neutrality. There was still too much raw emotion. Then in 1918, Teddy went in the hospital with a operation that Taft had already had. So he wrote him a note of sympathy, knowing the pain he was going through. Teddy answered it, breaking the ice a little bit. But then what really happened was, as you suggest, in 1918 later, um, Taft was in the Blackstone Hotel in Chicago, and he's going up in the elevator, and the elevator opera said, did you know that Roosevelt's in the dining room eating alone? It was just pure coincidence. They were in the same hotel at the same time. So Taft said, well, take me downstairs immediately. Goes over to Teddy's table, says, I'm so glad to see you. They throw their arms around each other. Teddy says, sit down. And the entire dining room of 100 guests applauds spontaneously, knowing it means they've gotten back together. And thank God they did, as Taft said, because only eight months later, Teddy would die of an embolism in his sleep, and Taft at the private funeral was standing there at the grave longer than anyone and told Teddy's sister he would have felt so terrible if he hadn't been able to have this coming together before Teddy died. Mm. Yeah, this is it's, it's high drama. And I, I always like to end the book. I mean, even with Lincoln, I couldn't bear to end with his death alone. So I was so happy to find this interview that Leo Tolstoy had given to a New York reporter in 1908, where he talked about Lincoln's being remembered even then so strongly. He had gone to Tolstoy had gone to an area of the Caucasus where there were a group of wild barbarians who never left that part of Russia. So they were so excited to have Tolstoy in their midst. They asked him to tell stories of the great men of history. So he said, I told them about Napoleon and Alexander the Great and Frederick the Great. But before I finished, the chief of the barbarians stood up and said, but wait, you haven't told us about the greatest ruler of them all. We want to hear about that man who spoke with a voice of thunder, who laughed like the sunrise, who came from that place called America that is so far from here that if a young man should travel there, he would be an old man when he arrived. Tell us of that man. Tell us of Abraham Lincoln. So I was so glad to see that that was what Lincoln's dream was, to be remembered after he died, to end on that note rather than simply the death um, meant a lot to me. So when I was able to find this Blackstone reunion, I said, yay! (laughs) Yeah, we're all glad that happened. I wonder, uh, as I was reading about Taft in your book, I I was, you read about his struggles with weight. I was thinking about another man, as probably you've made that leap as well, who may yet become president. That's uh, Governor Christie of of New Jersey. Uh, Tell us about... uh, William Howard Taft and, and those struggles, and maybe uh, compare that to today's times. Well, I will indeed. I mean, I think what happened to Taft, there's a weight chart that some doctor kept, and it's an interesting reflection. He started out as 250 when he was at Yale. He was fat as a child. Even when he was born, there wasn't enough milk, and they had to bring in another person's milk to help feed this child, and he got out of his clothes within a year. But his mother thought it was a healthy thing because she had lost her first child of frailty at 14 months. So in those days, I think a healthy, plump baby seemed like a good thing. He had a big frame. By the time he reached jail, he was 250 pounds. And interestingly, when he later became Supreme Court Justice, at the end of his life, the happiness, he was back to 250. But in the middle, he went up to 350. And I think it had to do with tension when he wasn't feeling good or sometimes eating, obviously, too much. The difference between his obesity and, and the worries about Chris Christie are two. I mean, one is that they worried that Taft might not be able to physically last. There was a time, but he did. He outlasted Teddy, um, who was the most fit president maybe that we had had, you know, by almost 10 years. But more importantly, obesity wasn't a national issue as it is now. So I think that's why it's really important that Chris Christie has taken the step he did to have that surgery to show that he's trying to do what he can to get his weight down. I mean, I think that's what we can ask of him, and I'm not sure how much more we can ask. I mean, he's trying, and it's working, hopefully. Um, if he hadn't done that and had just said, look, it's up to me how fat I am, given that the nation is worried about this problem, then I think it might have been you know, a, a difficult mark for him. But I think he's doing what he's trying to do, and I think that's a healthy thing. You, uh, you talk about two men and three great romances. I wonder if you could talk about the women and... and uh in these two men's lives? I sure can. I mean, what happened with with Roosevelt was that when he was a little boy, he lived in Union Square in um, New York, and there was another little girl who lived nearby named Edith, and they became best of friends. And even when he went to Europe, he cried at the thought when he was eight years old of leaving little Edith behind at five. They were girlfriend and boyfriend as adolescents. She came to visit him at Harvard, 
And then they had some mysterious breakup the summer of his sophomore year, and no one knows quite what happened. But he went back to Harvard his junior year, and he met a young girl named Alice Hathaway Lee and fell madly in love with her and married her, much to the devastation of little Edith. Um, he and Alice were happily married for a couple of years. She then got pregnant, had a child, and two days after delivering the child died. And so she's only in her early 20s. He was devastated. He goes to the Badlands to recover from his depression. He thinks that he will never love again. And gradually in the Badlands, his love of nature develops and his, and his depression subsides. He comes back to New York, happens to see Edith again, and within three weeks knows that they will, should be together. And they have a long, joyous marriage. He just felt guilty at the beginning, thinking you shouldn't marry again if you had loved one woman. But the truth is he loved both women, and Edith became the sustaining marriage. But she was a very private woman. Unlike Nellie Taft, she thought her main responsibility as First Lady was companionship to her husband and her children. She never gave out public interviews. She said a woman's name should be in the press only when she's buried and when she's married. So in contrast, Nellie Taft was an unconventional young woman growing up in Cincinnati. She always wanted something more for her life than simply society and marriage. She wanted to go to college, but her brothers were sent to Harvard and Yale, and she was not. She became a teacher in a boys' school. Her mother worried she was giving up society, but she wanted something more for herself. She loved politics from the time she was young. So she meets young Will Taft, and he falls deeply in love with her, adores her and values her intelligence, and promises her that she will be a partner. And indeed, she is every step along the way. Every speech he goes over with her, every strategy, they're like chums together. When he's governor general of the Philippines, she's the one that institutes a lot of the the changes that were so important over there, including a sterilization of milk campaign that saved so many lives. As First Lady, she becomes really active. She um, worries about working women. She brings the cherry trees to Washington, creates a private, pub, a public park, rather, with free concerts, and brings a lot of people to the White House, not exclusively, who hadn't been there before. But then, sadly, you know, two months after this happiest time of her life, she has a devastating stroke and can never speak in connected languages again, and it shadows his entire presidency. I mean, these are where, you know, you try and figure out what went wrong with Taft's presidency and to not understand that losing this most powerful person in his life and having to see every day her struggling to even say phrases like, glad to see you, which he taught her to say so she could be on reception lines, it was really, really hard for him. And Taft did end up with his dream job, uh, finally, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Absolutely. Finally, in 1921, um, President Harding appointed him, not only Supreme Court, but Supreme Court Chief Justice, and he said it was the happiest day of his life. I wonder, in the remaining uh, three or four minutes, um, we could uh, we briefly talk about uh, the, the, the other uh, strain of your book, The Golden Age of Journalism, is what you call it. And you focus on McClure's Magazine. These are some fascinating characters. I really felt that they had an, an equal role in the progressive era, as did Theodore Roosevelt. And indeed, historians of the progressive era often argue that this magazine and then the echoes that it produced in other magazines played a signal role in the progressive era. And the reason is that McClure, the founder, really understood that he wanted his magazine to have a mission for good. And it meant that he gave these reporters everything they needed, the time and the resources to produce really long articles in Ida Tarbell's case about the unfair means that Standard Oil had used to become this monopoly. In Ray Baker's case, all the things the railroads were doing to crush smaller competitors. Lincoln Steffens detailed the political corruption in the cities. And people read these articles. They were like 50,000 words sometimes, 20,000 words, as if they were short stories because they were so well written. They were always stories. And then the anecdotes from the stories Theodore Roosevelt could use to make his case to the public. So he became very close to this group of journalists, and they would come to lunch and dinner, and he depended on their articles. They got access from him, and to go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, and it turned out that, that they are the legendary groups of, I mean, if I had to be a journalist, I would love to have been at that magazine at that time. It would have been amazing. They had great camaraderie. They all knew each other. And, in fact, years later, they would look back on this time as the happiest time of their lives. They'd all get together to celebrate McClure's birthday because eventually the magazine broke up. It had its own sadness. 
but then they remembered the, these years as the years when they were most fulfilled and when they were doing work that really changed the country, and which was pretty special. Finally, just a minute left. You point out, I believe this is in your epilogue, that though um, the, the, the progressives shot themselves in the foot for the election of 1912, in succeeding years, uh, several amendments to the Constitution were passed, which uh, solidified the uh, progressive gains. No question. I mean, they were talking about an income tax amendment then, which eventually gets passed. Women's suffrage was part of the 1912 um, campaign of the Bull Moose campaign. So, yes, I think the ways they began to raise issues that it took years sometimes to fulfill, but they were on the side of history that would history would be moving toward. And we'll uh, end it there. Uh, more, much more in the book. And you'll have to go read it. The Bully Pulpit is the title of the book. Subtitled Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. The author is uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, who uh, wrote many other books, including Team of Rivals. Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure for me to talk to you, really. Thank you. And uh, for producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. At StoryCorps, 23-year-old Wesley Peterson interviewed his mom, 58-year-old Diane Peterson, about growing up in Southern California during the Civil Rights Movement and how that affected her decision to adopt him. First question I have for you, Mom, is what was it like growing up in Southern California during the 60s and the 70s? Like, I know there was a lot of civil rights things happening. How did that affect you? I was 11 when the Watts riots occurred. So I was, I was really young, not really very aware. I vaguely remember my parents being real concerned listening to the news. And um, there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of fighting. And yet um, I was living in the middle class, and so I didn't feel a lot of those feelings. About five or six years later, I went to Woodrow Wilson High School in Long Beach. The Long Beach uh, uh, Unified School District was one of the first to adopt a voluntary desegregation. So um, in my last year of high school, there were volunteers my age who uh, from the west side of town who were bused to our our high school. I felt fine about it. Uh, my father at the time said to me one day as I was walking out, out the door to school, um, if you ever bring a black home, I, I will kick you out of the house. And so at that time, of course right. he was prejudiced, but I think also what I noticed as I was growing up was he was very much afraid, afraid of his children being in the wrong place at the wrong time, getting involved in this racial turmoil. Did you feel safe living in Long Beach during this time? You know, um, as I got older, I felt less safe than I did, you know, when I was younger. Actually, my last year of high school, I was in the house with my brother about four doors down from the little local market. Uh, the man that owned the market was Earl, and actually I knew him since I was in kindergarten. He was like part of our family. I'd go down and get an orange crush all the time and rot my teeth out, you know. But anyway, my brother heard a gunshot, and he told me to stay in the house. And, and he ran out of the house, and, and there, with a gunshot wound, in front of the little market was Earl. And he had been robbed. Uh, my brother had, had run back home and called 911, um, but he ended up dying. I realized then things were changing. California was a great place to grow up. And so it was hard to leave, but also California was in the middle of, of lots of controversies. There were a lot of people, and as happy as I was living in California, I also was stressed out. And so as I thought about you know, finishing up my college, um, I decided to, to take off and go to Utah. Growing up through all of this did it have any effect on you and your decision when you adopted me as an infant as to like why you adopted a Hispanic child versus adopting a Caucasian child? Have you ever thought about that? Oh, there was a lot of thought. I think that there was probably more thought than I really realized. I knew from the beginning that you would be Hispanic. Your birth father was Colombian, birth mother Caucasian never even thought for a minute that that made a difference. 
But I remember when you were young, and and I'd go to to school to like PTA get meetings, some, and looks. and people had seen us together before, and they would maybe ask about you or ask if I'd been married before. And I got to a place where I would make light of it when someone would look at you and then look at me or look at your dad, and I could tell what they were thinking. I would say, doesn't he look like me? Don't we look alike? <laughs> and then you would smile and laugh, and, and, and we would go home. And they'd go, oh, yeah, kind of. They didn't know what to say. I was a very lucky person to grow up in the 60s and 70s in Southern California. The opportunity I had to develop a belief system that God loves us all and that he, he sees us all as equal. But I like to think that I made some choices to um, possibly encourage a more peaceful existence. You've always taught me to be like Dad. You've always taught me to be a peacemaker and to not mm -hmm. cause problems. Well, thank you, Wes. So... And I love you, Wes. I don't even think about what color you are. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera, July 9th through August 9th in Logan, presenting Les Miserables with full orchestra and starring Patrick Miller as Jean Valjean. Information at utahfestival.org. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Thank you for listening to Access Utah Today. Stay tuned for the Zesty Garden coming up today at 10 o'clock, followed by performance today at 11. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.